Welcome to Ideas Goes Abroad. We are Marlinda and Camila, two students of the Master Program International Development Studies at Utrecht University. For our studies, the whole class was spread out over the Global South to conduct field research. From Sudan to Costa Rica, from Vietnam to South Africa. From remote villages and rainforests to metropolises and tourist hotspots. We're here to bring you stories from our fellow students who have done research and lived on the other side of the world. In each episode, we learn about their adventures and cherished moments and how they managed to do their research while dealing with cultural shocks. In this episode, I'm talking to Marlinde, my friend and co-host of the podcast. This is a very special one, full of music and enthusiasm for Latin America. Marlinde conducted a research in Havana, in Cuba. Her focus was on the empowerment of artists who produce music independently and who break away from governmental control. I hope this episode finds you well and that you can get inspired by Marlinda's story. Welcome Marlinda to the podcast. I am very excited to be interviewing you today. Although I've heard already some of the stories from your experience in Cuba, I am so excited to actually dive into them and get to know more details about it. Thank you. I'm also really excited. And uh, yeah, let's start. <laughs> let's start. So can you tell us a little bit of what the focus of your research was? Yeah, the main focus was on independent Cuban musicians and the use of digital media in the Cuban music sector. Um, the Cuban music sector is completely institutionalized still which means that all music commercialization has to go through state institutions. That limits the freedom of Cuban musicians in various ways and mainly in freedom of creative expression because there's still a lot of censorship. Therefore, I wanted to explore whether digital media could support musicians to work more independently and what impact this would have on the empowerment of Cuban musicians. Okay, that sounds really interesting. I'm wondering, what did artists use before 2011 for uh, publishing their music? Well, that's actually a good question because in Cuba they found a kind of a unique way to distribute music, which is with the use of USB sticks. So one person actually collects the music from musicians and then distributes the USB sticks. Wow. That's super nice. That's yeah. very innovative. I've never heard of it and you didn't tell me before. No, exactly. It's so, also the way how they listen to, or they, they watch movies, for example. Okay. Maybe we can uh, talk about Havana, the place you were. Can you give us a visualization of the place you were and what it looked like and what it sounded like and what it smelled like? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think Havana is a very unique place. It has such a special appearance and I've never seen anything that looks like it. First of all, it is very green and the streets have kind of this exotic vibe with colored houses and of course the old timers as well. And in the streets you will see people shouting or whistling to see if their friends are home because I think a lot of people don't have doorbell. <laughs> and when it gets dark, and the temperature is cooling down a bit. There are men sitting on the side of the road playing dominoes. Yeah, it has a really, really nice atmosphere. I think, although I really like the city, 
I think Cuba is often portrayed as this paradise place, but I think a lot of tourists are often kind of disillusioned once they see some neighborhoods that look like there has been a war going on. Buildings are damaged or dirty or under endless construction. That's also a side of Cuba and of Havana. But despite all the poverty, Havana is such a colorful and lively place. There's music everywhere, uh, live music in bars and restaurants, and there are street musicians or group of people dancing or individuals dancing. Music is everywhere, and that's something I really liked about Havana. What impressed me when you were talking about Havana is that really the tourists have a romanticized image of of Cuba in general. Yeah. I have it and I've never been there. And you see these photos and they look completely like vintage. Yeah. Like it seems like a place where time hasn't really passed. But um, yeah, I, I don't know how it is in reality. Like I don't know how Cubans see it themselves. I think it's most important that we keep in mind that this romanticized image of Cuba, where time has been standing still, is the daily reality of Cubans. They cannot just leave it behind like tourists, but they actually have to to face it every day. And the reason that Cuba didn't progress so much is, of course, because it's a really close and isolated country, both because of the internal and external embargo. So that is the embargo from the United States. And this brings a lot of problems like the food scarcity. And I cannot say what the right way forward is for Cuba because, of course, it's also valuable that the Cuban identity is preserved and that traditions are not forgotten. But I feel like the younger generation is actually ready for progression, but also really cares about about their traditions being maintained. How did you experience integrating with the culture there since the first few weeks? Okay, so I want to start with a fun fact about Cuba. <laughs> so often cultures are described as warm, right? But in Cuba, I actually noticed multiple times that Cubans describe themselves or their friends as caliente, which means hot. And I think that's a very good description for many elements of the Cuban culture. Because I thought the Cuban culture was very intense. And in the beginning, I really had difficulties with feeling comfortable there. For example, I, I wouldn't feel comfortable enough to go alone outside and walk in the streets. Because literally almost every man is catcalling or saying something. And I think I'm a very obvious tourist because I'm so tall. So I think that's one of the reasons, but I think it's also just really part of the Cuban culture. And often people just want to be nice, you know, so it's not even meant in the wrong way, but it can be really intimidating. And I just felt like a really obvious outsider in the beginning, mainly. But at some point, I started to settle in more. And I remember that I met one of my neighbors. And one day, we were walking through the neighborhood. And 
He wanted me to meet everyone. And we would just walk into people's houses because that seems to be normal in Havana. And um, I think this is one of the things that really helped me to feel less of an outsider. And I think it also... Yeah, I think people started to recognize us, you know, as as the girls who were actually living in their neighborhood for a while already. So they knew that we weren't like normal tourists coming over for a week and not understanding anything from the local culture. And yeah, we started to have nice conversations with people and rather than catcalling, they would say things like, there's our friend or something. And yeah, I felt really safe and comfortable in our neighborhood. That sounds really good, like such a good integration with the culture. So what did you like about the culture there? I feel like people in Cuba are so much more socially connected than I'm used to from our own culture. I think this is also the reason why people are so communicative in the streets and that sometimes results in catcalling and staring, that kind of stuff. But it also leads to people actually noticing each other, you know? Sometimes in the Netherlands, I feel like people are not even making eye contact or people don't greet each other anymore. And that's something I really miss in our own culture and something I really appreciate from the Cuban culture. And also, it really stood out for me that people have a really communal mindset. One example... One day, the flip-flop of my classmate, it like, it snapped. So she couldn't walk on it anymore in the middle of the street. And you don't want to walk on bare feet in Havana. So a man actually saw that. And he pointed at a house where we had to ask for a friend of him, he said. And um, he actually walked with us eventually. And he he called his friend who took the slipper and... He was actually able to fix it with a screw wow. <laughs> and it took him like 15 minutes to work on it. And uh, in the end, I asked him if I could do something back for him or pay him or whatever. And he didn't want my money. Yeah, people are really helpful and willing to share. Yeah, it sounds like a very friendly environment, very helpful. I think that's what a lot of students actually, I feel like, experience when they go to the global south and two countries in the global south. And I find it just really amazing how we have a clash between the Netherlands and other countries. It's like the individualistic nature of this, of our country, of our culture kind of disappears, it seems like. What were the main findings of the research after you did like interviews also back home? So I explored how digital media might contribute to working in a more independent way by Cuban musicians and how this might impact their empowerment. And independent means independent from Cuban music agencies, so independent from the government, actually. So the amount of people that connect to the Internet has increased extremely the last couple of years in Cuba, and especially international digital platforms offer like virtual spaces that the government can't directly censor. They cannot just remove music or posts from Spotify or Facebook, for example. So I think 
the government definitely sees this as a threat, these developments. And also there were events organized that were giving a stage to independent art at the same moment. And those things probably led to the introduction of two decrees, 349 and 370. The first degree criminalizes independent artists in the Cuban cultural sector. And the second finds people that are critically expressing themselves on social media. And this made it actually more complicated to earn money as a musician in an independent way, because now it's really illegal. So that is to say, if people don't want to risk high fines or even worse, they have to go through state institutions. Okay. And how so? How is the music industry connected to the governmental institutions? There are different music agencies. For example, there is a rap agency. And the problem is that they have very limited capacity. So the rap agency, for example, has a catalog of 15 rappers. But of course, that's not enough to represent the whole rap scene in Cuba. So that's a problem. And this is one of the reasons why a lot of people are rejected by the music agencies. And even though they studied music for years, from a very young age, they are not able to legally work as a musician. And why are the artists trying to find a way around governmental institutions to publish their music? Well, one of the reasons I actually just mentioned, and that is the very limited capacity from music agencies, and this results in a very selective process with the music licenses. One of my interviews was with a participant who is crazy talented and she was rejected three times by a music agency. And other participants also told me that your chances to get contracted really increases with the right connections. So they told me that there's a lot of nepotism in Cuba in the music sector. Another reason is freedom of expression. Some musicians don't want to be limited in the kind of lyrics they write because there's a lot of censorship in Cuba. And when you work for an agency, they won't accept lyrics that are critical of the government or are against uh, revolutionary ideals. And also because the music agencies are mainly supporting more conservative and mainstream genres, if you want to do something more progressive as a musician, you have more freedom to do that as an independent musician. Okay, and how are these artists finding a way to become independent? Is there a certain tactic that they use, a lot of them? Well, first of all, I have to say that being completely independent while also being successful as a Cuban musician is a difficult combination because a musician's success depends, of course, on its visibility and its popularity, but this also means being visible to the government while doing actually something illegal. I did find some strategies for independent activities that are still possible. One of them is having a connection abroad. That's really important. And the reason is because musicians in Cuba cannot open a commercial bank account. So they wouldn't be able to collect, for example, streaming royalties. The connection abroad can help them with putting their music on Spotify or other platforms and collect streaming royalties and send this back to Cuba. 
So that is one strategy. And another important finding is about reggaeton, which is huge in Cuba. But the opinions on reggaeton are very polarized in the country. And some say it's a very good representation of the Cuban identity and the culture and the music. But others literally despise it. But yeah, for me, reggaeton was mainly interesting for the research. Because what I found is that reggaeton musicians seem to be allowed much more freedom than the average musician in Cuba. You would expect that there would be more censorship on the lyrics because they are often very sexist and disrespectful towards women. But this doesn't happen, weirdly enough. And I was wondering why. Many participants told me that this music is actually allowed because it's not about politics. It's about dancing and drinking and having fun. And it helps people to forget about their struggles. It's accepted by the politicians because it doesn't criticize them directly. Exactly. Yeah. That is so interesting. Yeah. It's such a, it's a feature of a really authoritarian regime, I think. It sounds like I'm hearing from George Orwell novels, like a way to keep the society kind of uh, ignorant and what was your finding regarding introduction of internet and the introduction of streaming platforms for example for the independence of artists in Cuba there is this idea that the use of internet automatically leads to democratization in a country I heard this story about a strategy from the CIA to secretly open up Wi-Fi spots in Cuba to kind of support the use of the internet in Cuba before it was actually introduced there. So before 2011. And this was used as a strategy to democratize Cuba. So this idea is very prevailing that the use of internet automatically leads to democratization and empowerment of citizens. But on the other hand, it's often forgotten that the internet is actually embedded in power structures. The internet is actually controlled and monitored within these power structures for a great part. And what you actually see in Cuba is that this is a tactic that is used by the government to get information via citizens and this way it indirectly contributes to the control that the government has. One example is from a Cuban woman who migrated out of Cuba. She became very successful after migrating and she did tours all over the world. But eventually the Cuban government found out via Facebook and she had to sign a contract with one of the Cuban agencies because she's still a Cuban citizen and she's making music and earning money with that. So now she has to pay really high taxes. So we have to take into account that it can work both ways. But I also definitely found some positive results on empowerment, mainly in terms of collective empowerment, because the decrease actually became kind of a symbolization of the oppression that is happening in Cuba. And it's almost like 
evidence that the community of Cuban bloggers and the whole cultural community is using to show the whole world what is going on. So basically you're saying that internet is actually does not become an infrastructure that is free from the power structure, that is free from control, but actually it is just embedded in this controlled system. Exactly, yeah. So when you talk about these uh, findings and the research itself, it sounds like it's a really sensitive topic. How did you manage to conduct interviews and just to network and to find your way around for actually finishing the research? Yeah, it is a very sensitive topic. What I learned is, for me, it was really important to find new connections via already made connections. So I would always ask them for help uh, with bringing me into contact with new participants. And then you already start from a small basis of trust because... Uh, you have a mutual friend or a mutual connection. And um, also when someone brought me in contact with a new participant, they would always say that I had to mention that I was a really good friend of them. I think for me it was also really important to kind of sense someone's position in the current Cuban situation because you should definitely be more careful with asking critical questions, I think, when someone really supports the government, you know. And I also noticed that people are really different in how easy they talk about sensitive topics. Some might be more afraid of repercussions. For example, I spoke with Cuban migrants who talk much more, much easier about sensitive topics. So you said that you actually did interviews uh, at home after you got back. How did you manage to... To do that, how did you manage to continue your research? Well, it was very hard in the beginning. I think it took me a month to actually get things going. I started with asking help from friends I made in Cuba. And I think it was mainly difficult because in Cuba, the Wi-Fi points were closed and guarded. So people there had to rely on their own data, which is expensive. And therefore, at some point, I decided to also include Cuban migrants and and also include their perspective in my research as well. And that really helped me out. I'm really grateful for everyone I was able to meet this way. I learned so much every day just from my own room in the middle of the pandemic. So that was a really great and valuable experience. I actually built some stable connections and I would just have conversations with them over WhatsApp for days, also with Cubans in Cuba eventually. And I learned a lot from them. Was that how you conducted the interviews with people from Cuba during the pandemic? Exactly. By yeah. text? Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes I would use voice memos. Sometimes I would just use text, sometimes Skype. Yeah, so, you need to be flexible. Exactly. Of course. Yeah. So what suggestions would you have for students who may want to interview and have conversations with people from other countries uh, for their own research? I would say the most important thing is to first get a very good understanding of the local context and also of your own positionality. Because, for example, in the Cuban context, in the Cuban culture, agilitarian values are 
are the most important, I would say. Well, in our own culture, we have a much more individualistic focus, I would say. So be aware of of those differences and how they might affect your point of view. And also ask locals for help with your interview guide. They understand better how to formulate certain sensitive topics and what to ask or what not to ask. And lastly, I would say, ask the connections you already have to bring you into contact with new people. I think that's very important to, yeah, as I said before, to start already with a basis of trust because you have a mutual friend. I mean, it's chain reaction of connection and networking. And that's, a, I guess it's a noble sampling um, method to collect data. Merlinda, how did you experience the pandemic? Was there something that struck you from the way Cubans handled it? Well, I thought it was a really strange experience from the other side of the world to hear about what was going on in Europe because nothing was really going on in Cuba yet. There were only three cases at that time. And um, yeah, nothing was, was going on actually. It was all fine when we had to make the decision but then in a week or so everything changed so rapidly things started to close people's behavior or people's perspective started to change about the pandemic in the beginning they were actually kind of making fun of it and they didn't really understand the decision we had to make if we wanted to go home or stay and people thought that it would never come to cuba but um, yeah, it did. And the Cuban government was, as you might expect, very strict in the measures they took. As I said, everything closed down, even though there were like 10 cases or something that we knew of in one week. So a bit more than in the beginning. And um, people really started to stress out. There was at some point police everywhere in the street. And... Yeah, it went really fast. I can just give you my experience as as a non-Cuban person visiting Cuba. From one day to the other, we couldn't go outside anymore as tourists. We couldn't do anything. We had to stay in the house because if someone would see us outside or the police would catch us, actually the owner of the Airbnb where we were staying in would lose their license. And so we, we stayed at home, but actually all tourists were supposed to be collected in a hotel. Of course, we weren't tourists and we were already there for two months. So we were kind of a weird case uh, and they didn't come to collect us so we could stay in the house. But yeah, it was a problem when we had to go to the airport because tourists were not allowed to take taxis. Taxi drivers were not allowed to drive around tourists they could actually be caught and uh, sent to jail for that. So, yeah, there was a problem, but the owner of the house found a taxi driver that wanted to help us and bring us to the airport. But he was so stressed out. And um, my classmate, who is really blonde, she actually had to hide on the ground of the taxi. And I could sit in the front, but, well, as I said, there was police everywhere. And at some point, I told my classmate... 
this and she wanted to look. But the taxi driver started to shout, like, they can put me to prison, they can, they can put me in jail. So yeah, that was a very stressful experience, mostly for the taxi driver, I think, but also for us. And at some point, uh, some policemen started to stare at us and the taxi driver just told me to sit closer to him so I could act like I was his girlfriend and they would be less suspicious. Oh, that sounds like an adventure. Yes. I'm very glad you got there safely and also the that the taxi taxi driver didn't get into trouble for that. Um, so before we leave, I would like to ask you the question we always ask our guests, which is, what was your favorite moment in Cuba? Um, I, I would say it was one night. I was walking through the streets with my classmates and a group of friends. Um, normally it would feel kind of unsafe i know it isn't but it it's just a bit sketchy these streets it's very dark there's no lights group of men on the side of the roads that are catcalling and it just doesn't feel like the safest place but then we arrived at our destination which was chinatown in in havana and there was this art gallery that threw a party and it was the most progressive place you can imagine and I never thought to find a place like that in Cuba and there was very progressive jazz that was a fusion with all kinds of music like rock and hip-hop and it was so good and there were like the crowd was really diverse I actually saw guys with glitter beards they had glitter in their beards I never thought that this would be possible in Cuba, that diversity was actually celebrated in some places. It was a really nice evening. Yeah, I can imagine when you mean progressive and then you see a guy with glitter on the beard, then you really wouldn't expect it. Exactly, that's such yeah. A, that's such a nice image to, like, to be confronted with. And... Um, What were the things that impressed you the most about Cuba and about your experience there? Cuba is such an interesting country in general, actually. I was reading a book of Robin D. Moore in which he described his constant confusion about seemingly basic life in Cuba, in which I really recognized my own experience, actually. Like basic things like getting a cab or finding food, But yeah, eventually you get to understand that everything is connected to like political things, how the country is structured, how the economy works. It's all so different from what I'm used to. So that's one thing. But above all, I was really, really touched and blown away by the Cuban connection to music. People seem to be walking music vessels full of rhythm, just ready to explode in whatever way possible, like dancing in the street or singing or shouting or like rhythm is everywhere in Havana. Also in the interviews, people would always tell me how they were raised with music from the moment they were born and how big of a part it is of their identity. 
I think music is such a powerful tool in Cuba to create this cohesion, you know, to be able to share such an intense passion or love for something with the people around you. I think that is a very valuable thing and I was really touched by that. such an enriching experience that you had. Thank you so much for sharing, Marlinda. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you like our podcast, it would be great if you could share it with your friends and family and on socials. For more information on Marlinda's fieldwork experience, visit our Instagram at Ideas Goes Abroad. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.